You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Welcome to our April 9th episode, asking, how are courts coping with the coronavirus? Although it seems like ages ago, it's just been little over 10 weeks since the first case appeared in the United States. That was in the city of Seattle on January the 19th. It's been slightly over three weeks since the president declared a national health emergency, and infection rates look like they have not yet hit their peak. We have most of our panelists back from last week and a new guest. New to our panel, we have Mike Rowdy, Court Executive Officer in San Diego, California. Also joining us today is Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator in Daytona Beach, Florida. Angie Van Skoik, Court Administrator in Breckenridge, Colorado. Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator in Eugene, Oregon. And Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. To start off, we've had some listeners write in questions. Jeff Barlow wrote in asking... Is there anything that was deemed essential last week, on our March 30th recording, that has now moved into the non-essential column? Rick Pierce, have there been any functions that have become less essential in the Pennsylvania courts since last week as the crisis has deepened? I think that's all measured in degrees. I think that there's a way of those essential functions or those that are a priority. Maybe it's the methods of communication or modes of communication that courts are using that someone could say, well, it doesn't seem to be as much a priority for us devoting our attention because we resolve the issue to our satisfaction, at least, and how we're communicating with the general public or something along that line. I do think regarding the the functions of the court and the proceedings that the court is doing all across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania still remain the same. Angie Van Skoik, are there functions in Breckenridge, Colorado that have become less essential since last week? There's not a lot that has changed for us since last week. I do know that the police department's not doing as much in terms of traffic stops and such just to limit their contact uh, with people. So there's a a lot less tickets that are coming into court. But one of the good things was that uh, with that, they're able to write them out a little bit further. So there's less that I'm going to have to do for contacting them to let them know of changes in court dates. And then also where it was kind of before we were supposed to try to go in multiple times during the week, they're saying going into the actual building once a week is plenty at this point in time, just limit the number of people that are in town hall and limit exposures of you know anybody coming in from their houses. Even though you're only going into the office once a week, are there personal protections that you have to apply? I have some hand sanitizer in my car. And so as I go into the building, it's you have a key fob to get into the back door. And so you're having to come into contact with multiple door handles as you get into the office, which is slightly unfortunate. But we have hand sanitizer in the office, too. And we joke at this point in time, like our office is probably the cleanest place in town hall because we are like going overboard with the hand sanitizer and just wiping things down constantly. So 
you know, as we get in, we wipe everything down. As we leave, we're wiping everything down. And so it's anybody that's coming in there, they're not really coming into contact with anything. But the nice thing is because you have to touch so many handles going in, have to touch zero handles going out because they're all push doors. So you can just walk right out without touching anything, which is very beneficial, I think. Norman Meyer wrote in asking, what measures are you taking to deal with staff wellness during the crisis? Mark Weinberg, what is your court doing in Daytona Beach to address staff wellness? Well, you know, it's funny you should mention uh, Norman in that we thought so much of the, the article that he posted recently that we sent it out to all of our staff for them to take a look at. We're also pretty lucky here in that we have really good employee assistance programs for our staff, and so we encourage them to take advantage of the services offered by those programs if they feel they need it. The article Norman put online is posted on the NACOM podcast landing page for this current episode under Additional Resources. Mike Rowdy, first of all, welcome. And what is the San Diego Superior Court doing to address staff wellness? Uh, we actually started well before the first closures, which hit our court on March 17th. We started posting through our internal intranet, internet uh, resources updates from me to the employees and to the judges through our presiding judge. We've continued to post regularly. Although most all of our employees are at home, they do have the ability to continue accessing court systems from home. So we continue, at least on a weekly basis, to continue posting information in general, but also more specifically about the court. We, Our benefits uh, department within our human resources department continues to post wellness tips and, and techniques. Like Mark, we have the, the employee assistance program available. And I think most importantly, by giving them as much information about the state of the court and the state of public health in general, and also responding to emails that they may send, we've think done a pretty good job of keeping them up to date on what's happening here in San Diego. Do you send out updates on a regular basis or just as new information becomes available? Well, it's both because the situation changes in some cases from the morning to the afternoon. We have a very active local public health updates happening, so we want to tie into those. But we've committed to at least a weekly update as well so that we can recap things that may have happened, things that are coming up. Our judicial council has been very active recently in issuing emergency orders. So we work to get that out on a, at least a weekly basis, but we've also done some ad hocs as well. Last week, almost all of you said that communication was key in a crisis. So I want to ask a few questions about crisis communication. How have you been communicating with employees, justice system partners, and decision makers during this crisis? Let me frame what I'm talking about. The state of Alaska actually has an emergency communication response network. It's called NICSL. Some courts use group phone messages. Other courts post information on their websites. Still others put out group emails. Liz Rambo, what has the Lane County Trial Court been using, and how effective has it been? Well, I want to focus my answer in a little bit on how we've been communicating with our employees and our uh, business partners that provide direct services. And for that, the Oregon Judicial Department has contracted with a program called Everbridge. It is a continuation of operations communication software that's very effective. It can be used on a PC or on mobile devices, and it sends... um, 
I should explain it. You can use it to send text messages, voicemails, emails with document attachments, and you can have several contact types per user. And we really in Oregon have been using it for several years, I think probably five or six at least for weather emergencies. And so the managers are familiar with it. And that actually made it more useful in this situation than it would have been if we were trying to learn something new. So we have groups set up in Everbridge for employees, judges, business partners, and other people who require direct notification from me or from us. And we can select which groups based on who the contact is and what type of communication they need. It also has reporting data. So we can figure out if, say, I'm sending something critical that I need to make sure all the employees got, I can check the reports. Um, shortly after I send a notification and it tells me if everyone got it, how many people got it, who didn't get it, and then we can find other ways to reach out to people. So it's very responsive and quick way to get information out. There's lessons with everything these days. And I have to say our lesson on that one, at least here locally, was that we'd been using it primarily for weather emergencies, you know, ice storms and last year's snowmageddon, which happens. And so We'd been primarily using it for emergency text messages, things that you needed to get to people really quickly, and not for more voluminous communication like emails where you would want to put an attachment from the chief justice. So while we had many of our employees' home email addresses on there, we didn't have all of them. So we really quickly had to correct that and make sure that we had all um, email addresses for all of our employees so they could get that critical information, whether it was EAP stuff or stuff from the chief or just things from me about what's going to happen tomorrow. But using the tool has been fantastic. When you say that employees got the message, does the system tell you how many messages were successfully sent or how many were actually opened? Both. It'll tell you if you ask for it to confirm a text messages, then the employee confirms that they got it with a yes, like you sometimes see from your doctor's office. Or if it's an email, it will tell you if the employee opened the email, all of the above. Pretty pretty hardy software. Rick, what have the Pennsylvania courts been using, and what has been its effectiveness? We've been using something very similar to what Liz is talking about. And now what I will say, because we are a decentralized state, that it does vary a little bit when you're talking about within the district courts, but across the Commonwealth, at the state level for the appellate courts and for the administrative office, that's exactly how we communicate and how we've continued to communicate. Now, I will say that in regards to our communication with the individual district courts at the outset of the crisis, uh, the individual court, the individual district courts, through their president judge in some jurisdictions uh, across the country, they're called presiding judges or administrative judges, but we call them uh, president judges here in PA. Uh, they would petition a court by rule of judicial administration to have certain local authority granted to them regarding their court operations. And then kind of within a few days of the onset of the crisis, it became apparent to the Supreme Court that this emerging crisis was going to be statewide rather than just regional. And therefore, the Supreme Court intervened and assisted the district courts with closures of all court facilities to the public and requiring the district courts to only perform uh, those mission essential critical functions that are set by court rule or statute. Now, that was communicated directly by the state court administrator to all the president judges and all the district court administrators via email, but we were confident that they all received the message uh, because we have email grouping that shows, and we have the capability to show whether they opened the email and, and read it. 
and this was done uh, consistently and constant, uh, consistently accurate and constant information that was given by the state court administrator for that first week to 10 days that we were going to mission critical functions only across the Commonwealth. Now, most of you have had to make some very difficult decisions and had to make them within pretty tight timelines. For example, you folks have had to decide to suspend jury trials, and many of you have had to decide to close courthouses. Liz, walk me through how these decisions were made in your court, who made the decisions, and who was consulted. Well, in our courts, our Chief Justice in Oregon did a fantastic job of working quickly to issue a Chief Justice order that described what was going to be those essential and non-essential functions of the courts. So our responsibility became implementation. Her first order only lasted through the 27th of March. And so she issued a new order then that became effective on March 30th and goes through until this thing is over that goes in more deeply into what the court is going to be doing. Our decisions here locally have been about how to do it. And so we are still working hard to get even those essential functions that she has said we will do, things like in-custody arraignments and in-custody sentencing, some of them we were able to quickly get into remote and video conferencing service, but some of them we've, we are still working to do, for example, in-custody sentencing in particular, because they can be conducted by a number of different judges, and we have 15 and in a number of different locations. So that has been a bit of a challenge. And we've just tried to make those decisions based on prioritization. What technology do we have? How can we deploy it? Where can we deploy it? Um, what is the most critical thing that draws people into the building that we're going to try to move remotely? And based on the chief justice order, then prioritizing that way. Do you have an example of a function that was in the courthouse but has since been moved to a more remote location? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we used to do, um, the Chief Justice initial order said that we would do protective order proceedings in person, and that, as I said, expired on the 27th of March. The, the next order says those could be conducted in person, so we quickly moved those out of the building on Monday morning, and now we're doing those as need be. They can be ex parte, but as need be, if the judge needs to have a hearing, we're doing them remotely. And then contested hearings went remotely on Monday the 30th as well. So it's just been sort of an evolutionary process trying to figure out, like I say, what are the priorities of the Chief Justice and what technology do we have and how do we get it deployed? Mike, describe how these decisions were made in your court. California, like Pennsylvania, is a decentralized system. And the best guidance we were given was to really work with our local public health officials. And here in San Diego, they were making some for example, shelter-in-place decisions very early on, which really drove our decision-making. It's difficult to have a functioning courthouse when the county has issued a, a shelter-in-place stay-at-home order. And so it, working with our presiding judge, our assistant presiding judge, and a few key court leaders and our executive management team, which has been here every day, we are assessing the local public health situation juxtaposed with what our governor has been issuing as far as statewide direction and very, very conservatively moving forward. And when I say that, I mean, 
our list of essential services is quite limited. And if anything, the pressure is to try to relax some of those uh, definitions. But it's really been a, a local decision. And most recently, the Judicial Council has begun to weigh in. Uh, the State Judicial Council has begun to weigh in with some statewide orders because of the very different applications that the local trial courts throughout California have been using. Mark, how about your court? How were those decisions made? Uh, well, most of those decisions, as others have mentioned, have come to us through the Supreme Court of the state. So those larger kinds of definitions of what's essential and what's not have come from above, as it were. Um, and then we make some decisions locally on how to implement that. For instance, we have lots of branch courthouses, so we've decided that the chief judge of our particular judicial circuit decided to close some of our branch courthouses and try to centralize services as much as they can in consultation with prosecutors, public defender, and sheriff's office, and others. We, we just thought that was the best way moving forward. Something I wanted to mention that Mike had talked about, and this may be a topic for a future podcast, the longer this goes on, I think we've seen the tendency of people to try to make what had been viewed at least initially as non-essential, the desire now to do more things more often. So the relaxation of some of those constraints, I think, is something we're going to see move forward as this continues. Did you get any resistance to your decision to consolidate court operations to just a few locations? No, we haven't. Our branches were located in places based on geography primarily. So those who want to do things in person may have to travel a, a greater distance in order to perform those services. But for the most part, I think everyone has been pretty understanding of the situation we're facing and, and doing our best to make our services available to those who need them. Several of you said last week that communicating with employees is especially challenging during a crisis. Mark, how have you been letting employees know what is going on and what would you do to improve employee communication in a crisis? We're doing our best um, and been using all of those traditional modes of communication with our staff, group emails, group texts, posting information on our website, using social media as much as we can, getting information out to local media outlets. So we're using a variety of sources to try and get the information to our folks. Liz, how have you been letting employees know what is going on, and how would you improve that process? Well, I'd like more people doing it. I feel like my attention has been so so much on putting out fires that one of the things I would improve is I would have liked to send, let me just say this, I would have liked to send employees a communication every day. Here's what's going on, folks. Here's what to expect tomorrow. Here's what the next thing. Um, just to make them feel like they're still part of the action because most of our employees are not at work now and keep them informed and engaged. And I have not been able to do that. <laughs> there are just not enough hours in the day. And I think as we move forward, I'll be able to do more of that, but it might almost too little too late for some people. I hope not. I hope that what I've been doing has been enough, but I would have wished for if I can improve things, a group of people whose focus was on making sure that employees got all the messages that they needed at the right time and the right information, that would have been fantastic. Angie, it sounds like the Breckenridge police 
are still writing tickets. How have you been able to let potential jurors, attorneys, police, witnesses, and self-represented litigants know what they should be doing? One of the first things that I did uh, after the judge issued the standing order continuing all of the current dockets to future dockets when we thought we might have the courthouse open again is just having that posted on the door of town hall so anybody that shows up can see immediately it's like okay i might have a court date today but i don't and it's now this future court date i've also updated our website with all of the information for everything that people would have to do in terms of how to make payments uh, when their new court dates would be um, how to do plea by mail paperwork, um, just anything I could think of. And then anybody that had a court date in end of March or in April, I sent letters uh, to everybody saying, this is when your new court date is. Obviously, um, for people that are transient, you have no way to contact them. And fortunately, they've had um, friends that have called and said, hey, I'm supposed to have court, what do I do? And I've let them know, you know, this is when your new court date is but I have no contact information for them beyond them being transient. So it's like, I don't really know where they are, even if they're still in the county or not. But I did let PD know when things were rescheduled for. So if they happen to have contact with these people again, they can say, hey, I know that you were cited into court, go to town hall, you'll be able to see when you were rescheduled too. And then if you have questions, there's a the contact information, everything is on the door as well. So they can at least reach out to me if need be. And they can't get into the courthouse if they show up. So at least there's that benefit that they're not wondering what's going on. But everybody, I've put out as much information as possible. Also, like for the out of office, the email, they'll get detailed information with that too. Let me ask the question that I think is a good conclusion to every episode. What is the one lesson that you learned this last week during the crisis? Angie? Just that if when you need to adapt, you're capable of doing so with, with as little notice as possible. Just making sure that everything's still running and still going and getting everything taken care of and everything's still operational even though we're not there in person. Mark? The one thing I think that that I would touch on in the last week is the uh, interest of folks to do proceedings remotely, primarily by video conference. I, I always knew that the technology was out there and we used it on a limited basis, but it, it's really exploded of late on this. And so that, that would be the one thing I learned more about this week. Liz? Well, I suppose this last week has reinforced something I already knew, which is patience is key. I feel like in the last week, maybe something Mark said is true in that the demand for the court services have been increasing, and they've been increasing in an interesting way, I'd have to say. Uh, It's almost as if we don't launch the video technology quickly, then we're being held accountable for other people's safety. And so the lesson I've, I've been reinforced with this week is patience, listening to people's needs, asking for their help in meeting those needs from our partners, from the DA's office and the county and and others to help us with some of these things to meet their needs. And that's been what this last week is really about, reinforcing patience and listening and and trying to meet people's needs in a good way and an effective way. Mike? I think that those things that might previously have been viewed as impossible, like, for example, here in California, felony video arraignments, 
uh, become more probable and more likely the longer that this goes on. You see a lot of defenses dropping. You see a lot of people coming to the table wanting to know why we can't do things in a different way, which is a good thing. And they always say, take advantage of the crisis because it presents one wonderful opportunity. I think the longer that this goes on, the more those kinds of things become likely. And then the question will be, can we get them to stick once we resume something akin to normal operation? Rick? Well, I would echo what everyone has said so far this afternoon uh, regarding uh, this question. In particular, I think flexibility is obviously very important. But to piggyback on what Mike says, I think it's very interesting and very telling that perhaps in many state houses across the country, there may be discussions regarding the relaxation of in-person requirement based upon how long we are out and how successful we are in dealing with remote proceedings. And I think that although there are many lessons we learned this week since we're focusing on communication, I'll just note the quality of the remote communication solution varies. And I said the end-to-end encryption of these transmissions is really essential. Presenting a meeting or webinar over an application like Zoom or Blue Jeans is one thing, but holding a court proceeding of record and ensuring the integrity of that record is another entirely. And we, we must be cautious and ensure that all parties' interests and rights are met when everyone is participating remotely. The one beautiful thing about this is we've had some practice over the last several years of doing remote proceedings. It's now being ex- the expanded use of it. And now with everybody participating remotely, maybe not just one or two parties. So that's the uniqueness uh, that this pandemic has brought to us. I want to thank Mike, Liz, Angie, Mark, and Rick today for sharing their court's experiences dealing with the coronavirus crisis. I also again want to thank all of you court professionals out there listening to this podcast and who continue to go to work every day to keep the courts running. You are truly heroes. Join us next Thursday, April 16th, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.